go back. We'll start in verse 30 again. We'll read again. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And he answers and says to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they, when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Matthew tells us there were women and children present also. This is just the men. So, verse 30, the apostles gather back. You remember he sent them on a preaching circuit. And they went out and they taught and they um, healed people and they cast out demons. And so they come back and they're filling Jesus in on what they did and you know, this is the only place in Mark where they're termed apostles. The rest of the time they're called disciples. So they return from their preaching circuit and they tell Jesus they're experiencing. And the timing of this is shortly after Jesus learns of John the Baptist's death. We read about, you know, the account going back in time. John the Baptist was already dead. But uh, the timing of this going apart by themselves is around that, that time when Jesus hears about it. So they're weary, they're exhausted from their journeys. A time of physical rest and refreshing is planned. Henry Morris says Jesus here indicates the need for at least occasional rest for his zealous and concerned followers. No matter how urgent the need of Christian witness and service, the worker must also provide for his own. He cites 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And he must, they must give attention to reading 1 Timothy 4.13, especially providing the spiritual food and guidance for himself and his family. Well, plans do not often pan out as they were planned. You probably know that. And that's the case here. This is Jesus' plan, but he's flexible, and he responds to a changed plan. Jesus was always in perfect communication with the Father, but I don't think he knew all future events in advance. He walked with God by faith. John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, it says, 
Now, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Father, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So Jesus, as he went about his life living by faith, following the directions of the Father, He saw what the Father was doing, so he did it. He heard the Father's voice, and so he did what the Father commanded him. There were certainly some things Jesus knew well in advance, that he would be beaten, crucified, and raised from the dead. But I think in much day-to-day activity, he was directed by the Father as he went, walking by faith in all that the Father showed him to do. And that's the case with us, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. So they go to this deserted place that's away from the crowds. The nearest populated area, we're told, was Bethsaida. The bustling crowds made it impossible to even sit down for a meal. It is time for a retreat, and the only way to do so is to go to a place which is little populated. So Jesus wants to spend some time with his chosen apostles. This reminded me of the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10, where uh, the... Man speaks to his beloved and and it says, My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So there are those times where, you know, we're to come away, depart, be with the Lord, have that solitary time of fellowship with him. So they leave in a boat by themselves. They go to a place apart from any cities for some solitude. But the multitudes are watching. They see them going and Oh, they're headed, you know, this was at the top end of the Lake of Galilee. And so they see them heading over to the shore, you know, not that far away, just across the way from probably Capernaum to around Bethsaida area. And so they take off running and they actually beat them there. So they can't escape from the crowd. The crowds are like Beatles or Elvis fans. (laughs) I mean, I know that's, I know that's old, that's dated. I don't know what fans to compare them to today. You know, I don't, I'm not keeping up with all that stuff. But they can't get away. They, these people can't be denied. They run around the top of the Sea of Galilee to the place where the boat's going and they're actually waiting for Jesus when he arrives. Here we are. And Jesus, it says, when he came out, he saw them. He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Rather than rebuking the crowds and telling them to leave them alone for a while, Jesus sees their need and seeks to minister to them once again. Clearly, Jesus intends to spend some quiet quality time with the twelve, but he realizes at some point that his father has something else in mind. He has come away for a time to rest up, but he succumbs to the need that he clearly sees in the people. Their need takes precedence over his and his apostles' need. Because they associate with Jesus, when something takes precedence over his need, it also takes precedence over their need. The ones he has chosen serve as he serves. So Jesus perfectly represents the heart of the Father. He's moved with compassion as he sees the crowd wandering like a leaderless flock. Jesus begins to teach the multitude many things, we're told. In this, he is acting as a shepherd to these directionless sheep 
They're directionless in spiritual matters. He's providing food for this flock, spiritual food. Later, he then provides food for their bodies. David Guzik says, as a faithful shepherd, Jesus took care of their most pressing need. He fed them with the word of God. Of course, this allegory of sheep and shepherd is one used by the Lord in relation to his people or his flock throughout the scriptures. Sheep do not survive well on their own. They are easy prey for their natural enemies. They're food for their adversaries. They need a shepherd and they will not survive without one. Kuzik again says, Jesus knew that without a shepherd, sheep were in a lot of trouble. They can't fend for themselves against predators and they have a hard time finding the food and water they need. Jesus was moved with compassion for the people among the crowd because he knew their pressing demands were prompted by great needs. God often speaks of his people as sheep. Of all the creatures he made, sheep are the most often compared to his people. We see this in the Psalms, Psalm 100. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And it says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing, which is what we did earlier. Knowing that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. We also see this in Psalm 95, and part of this psalm is a a song that we've sung. In Psalm 95, just starting at the beginning, it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And he goes on to say, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We've dealt with that scripture recently, some of our studies. So, the sheep of his hand. And of course, uh, David the shepherd knows what it is to have a good shepherd. Psalm 23, uh, many of you may have this memorized. I can never seem to get all the verses in order. The Psalm of David, you know, we know that the Lord took David from the sheepfold, from watching over the sheep, and made him a shepherd over his people. And he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That means, you know, I won't I won't be lacking anything. Uh, I've heard somebody talk about this and they said the problem with people is that our wanters are turned too high. <laughs> The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Here Jesus is going to have them sit down on all the green grass that's in the area. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake, following that shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you have a shepherd, you can be at peace and rest in this valley of the shadow of death. You know his rod and his staff are nearby. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David actually had this experience when he went to Gath. and Had to hide out there from Saul for a while. He was actually in the midst of his enemies and the Lord's providing for him. And he will do so for his sheep. You anoint my head with oil. That was a nice comforting thing. And my cup runs over. You don't just fill my cup. My cup is overflowing abundantly. Surely goodness and mercy. I don't know who Shirley is. but (laughs) Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the Lord... Uh, is a good shepherd, right? And we'll see that he refers to himself that way. The coming of a shepherd for God's people was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40. Uh, if we start in verse 9, he's uh, exhorting Israel, Jerusalem, Zion, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. They're supposed to proclaim to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And they're going to see Him. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work is before Him. And we're talking about the coming of the Lord. And it says, then he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The heart of a shepherd. That's the heart of our God, the heart of our Father. The Almighty God has the heart of a shepherd. In case we need help identifying this one Isaiah speaks of, if we go to Revelation chapter 22, Verses 12 and 13, we find uh, somebody speaking, and in my Bible it's in red letters, so I know who that is. (laughs) And it is the Lord Jesus. And he says this in verse 12 of Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming quickly, or that can be suddenly. Once He comes, He's coming, and there's no time to prepare. It's like, oh, if only I'd had a few more seconds. You've got to be ready when He comes, right? I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Just as it said in Isaiah, his reward's with him. It's talking about Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus. His reward is with him. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, as he identifies himself. And then uh, Jesus with his apostles uh, speaks of himself as a shepherd. John chapter 10, there's extensive passage about him being the shepherd, but in verses 14 and 15 it says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the heart of a shepherd. Uh, He talks earlier in that passage about the hireling. He said he doesn't care about the sheep. He's just there for a job. He wants the money. And if something comes, you know, a lion or a bear... A wolf, uh, I'm out of here. You know, 
they can he can have the sheep. That's not our shepherd. And then there are also under shepherds or pastors as they they're called. A pastor is one who feeds the flock as a shepherd does the sheep. These two words are closely related. They're actually a different form of the same word, shepherd and pastor, uh, as it's translated. Uh, some Bibles translate the word pastors in the passages as shepherds, and that is indeed what they are. Uh, if we look in First Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4, Peter says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder... He could have said, you know, I'm the first pope. you got to listen to me. But, uh, or, you know, I'm one of the twelve. But he identifies himself as a fellow elder. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. And overseers, elders, shepherds, pastors, Bishops, <laughs> they're all the same office. We have the fancy words because some of them weren't translated, some of them were transliterated, but they're all the same office. If you compare passage with passage, you can see that. Actually, overseers is probably the word that's translated bishops many times because that's how it is translated sometimes. So, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And he says, when the chief shepherd appears, who's the chief shepherd? Well, that's Jesus. You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We get some hints here that and maybe just because you're acting as a shepherd, you might not be a good shepherd. You could you know, be having some problems. Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks of this also when he calls the Ephesians elders together. He calls them down to where he is because he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because he'll get stuck there because he won't be able to tear himself away from the people. And so he just sends for the elders of that church and they come down to where he is and he begins to exhort them. And in verse 28 of Acts 20, he tells them, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there are those dangers outside the flock. They'll come in and, be, and try to tear the flock apart, try to devour the sheep. But then he says, also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things, wrong things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. This is true sorrow and tragedy. You can expect it from the external, but you don't look for it from the internal many times. And that's true sorrow that those who among them, they were brought up with them seeking selfish ambition to draw away disciples after themselves and he says in verse 31, Then therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul gives him a warning about this. There are um, good shepherds and there are evil shepherds. We see this, this warning here. Over in uh, Zechariah, the uh, prophet Zechariah in verse uh, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, he talks about God's 
concern with the shepherds, and of course this is the Old Testament, so we're talking about the leaders of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. In Zechariah 10, verses 2 and 3, he says, The idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wind their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. The ones who were to be shepherds were not doing the proper. They were doing the opposite. (laughs) They were wolves in sheep's clothing. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, he says, and I will punish the goat herds. Can't get away with just hurting the goats. You know, you got to do that properly as well. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in battle. So you get this rebuke of the uh, shepherds. Zechariah is also, also the one that Jesus quotes in Mark Later, we'll see it later in 14.27, where Jesus says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so that's uh, something Zechariah says in chapter 13. When you're a sheep and your shepherd gets taken out, you don't have any strength left. Take me now, wolf. I have no defense. Make it quick, please. But he was not taken out to stay, and he can never be taken out again. That's the good news. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. says, If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And those apostles who you know, were scattered, the sheep were scattered, Uh, They were restored. They were brought back together again. And they would never lack having a shepherd with them again from that point on. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, Do not fear, little flock speaking to his apostles again, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So there is, he's, uh, he's no more to die and there is no more to fear because he is the shepherd over his flock. Now Ezekiel also prophesied against the shepherds of Israel. These were not literal sheep herders also, but these were the leaders who were to be good shepherds over the the people of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 34, the whole chapter is pretty much a a rebuke and a judgment upon the leaders of Israel. But if we start in verse 2, he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You got you, you slaughter the fatlings. But you do not feed the flock. I mean, they lived off the flock. But they weren't feeding the flock. They were just taking advantage of what they had. He says, The weak you've not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, or sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. 
And so, you know, we see the opposite of this. If we want to look at the character of the Good Shepherd, character of Jesus, He would strengthen the weak. He would heal the sick. He would bind up the broken. He would bring back what was driven away and seek that which was lost. He would not rule with force and cruelty. He says, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field where they were scattered, when they were scattered. So... uh, these shepherds failing in their responsibility before God. If we look at verse 11, Ezekiel 34, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. You're not going to do it? I'm going to do it. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. So this is the context of him drawing Israel back to the land and bringing them back. So, you know, as he's speaking of a sheep gathering his flock, he's talking about, in this context, about Israel. And we've seen that. I mean, it's taking place. It's not completed yet, but we've seen them being brought back from various countries into their their land once again. Now, Ezekiel also in chapter 34, if you read some of the other contexts, he also judges between sheep and sheep because he says some of you sheep are butting the other sheep out of the way. And the, so they were mistreating one another, mistreating the other sheep. And so there were, he, well, he was rebuking them as well. So it's not... Just if you're called to be a shepherd of the flock, that you should be a certain way. You know, the sheep should be good sheep. Good. So there's a way that we can identify good and evil shepherds. Um, in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus tells them to beware of false prophets. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So he's warning us against false prophets who are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're they're pretending to be uh, leaders, shepherds. So when we talk about fruit, we're not talking about personality. The fruit of false prophets is false prophecies. The fruit of false teachers is false teaching. In Second John chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, John warns and he says, Whoever transgresses does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So these ones who have gone beyond the doctrine of Christ, the Gnostics in his day had added various things and changed various teachings. He says, don't receive him into your house. And He's not talking so much uh, as you talking to somebody at your door, having somebody, but these were house churches. And so he didn't invite them to come in and present what they would present and teach what they would teach. 
for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds, he says. So there is the fruit of the Spirit, that's character. We have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are in contrast to the works of the flesh. And this is godly character over the long term as the believer submits to and is filled with the Holy Spirit and abides in Jesus. There is a sanctification, a progressive move where the fruit of the Spirit is to be more and more displayed in our lives as we grow in Jesus. The fruit must be tested. It has to be tasted to tell the genuine from the artificial. That's true today more so than any time in the past. It can be difficult to tell artificial fruit from a distance, but now sometimes close up. I mean, have you seen some of the good artificial or the new artificial fruit that they're just making? I mean, you can't really tell until you pick it up, and then you realize, oh, that's that's not a real apple. That's not a real banana. Yeah, you don't want to bite into it for sure. So, but there's artificial fruit out there that people seek to bear. You know, they'll attach an apple to themselves or a banana, but it's not part of their character or their nature, and so it doesn't last. It won't. You know, eventually it's it's going to be uh, seen through. You know, there's so much artificial that's out there, counterfeit out there of uh, biblical truth and uh, even church function, where it should function. It's, the, the world is getting better and better at faking things. Yeah, better, better, better at presenting counterfeits. You know, the devil's always been good at it, but now with our technology, we can do a lot better at it. You know, we can we can produce um, they're called deep fakes. You know, videos with people in them, and they're saying things that they never said. You know, and you can't tell. The really good ones, you can't tell that it's not that person speaking. So there's this artificial artificial fruit out there. Jesus said in Mark 13, which we'll get to later, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. It's not possible to deceive the elect, but if it were possible, these things would. He says, take heed. See, I've told you all things beforehand. He warns them. So, in other words, we have to be watchful. We have to be loving but discerning. Wise as serpents, harmful as doves, as he doves as he describes it. Now, the fruit of the Antichrist, if we gauge it by personality, that would be pretty good for the first three and a half years. He's going to be a magnificent person. Everybody's going to be saying, wow, that, that guy is really something. Um, but that's not the kind of fruit we're talking about. He'll, be, he'll look good for that first three and a half years of the covenant with Israel, but it's artificial fruit that's being produced. Now, I certainly don't mean to imply that we need to be paranoid or overly fearful of being deceived. We just need to stick close to the shepherd, listen to his voice, stay in his word, and the tricks of the enemy will be clear to discern. Walk with Jesus and fear not, little flock. But as Jesus sees the people here, he's moved with compassion. The compassionate heart of the Father is the compassionate heart of Jesus. Compassion is what motivates him here. He has a love for people who are hurting, in distress, and lost spiritually. 
His desire is to reconcile them to the Father, and He is going to the cross to make reunion with God possible for all men who will choose and who will come. Jesus is a shepherd for all of those who put their trust in Him, all who believe in Him, all who give themselves to be the sheep of His pasture. He will be your shepherd if you choose to hear His voice and follow Him. He desires to shepherd all people. He desires to shepherd all of these people in this context, all those 10,000 or so, but all will not follow Him. In fact, there's a great fallout among those who are hearing Him and who eat of this bread and this fish, as we'll see in John uh, chapter 6. So the day is waning, and you know they've been there all day. Jesus has been talking all day. When it says he taught them many things, that means he started and he just kept going, you know. And, you know, we don't know, the apostles interrupt him at some point saying, you know, it's getting late. <laughs> Maybe she you know, give it a break here for a while. Well, his apostles are likely getting a little frustrated. They came to have some quality time with Jesus. And that time has been taken away from them. They might be thinking, look, Jesus is our teacher. Go find your own. So they want Jesus to send this crowd away. Uh, William McDonald says, As the day wore on, his disciples became restless about the crowd. So many people and nothing to eat. They urged the Lord to send them away. The same crowd that drew out the compassion of the Savior annoyed the disciples. Are people an intrusion to us or are they the objects of our love? Um, quote from Chuck Smith, he said, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. So Jesus is flexible here. The apostles maybe not so flexible. They say, send these people away so they can get some physical sustenance. It's late. It's time for these people to leave. I'm not sure they have any real concern for the crowd. Jesus is the one who sees them as sheep without a shepherd. So, they tell him, send them away, let them buy something, you'll get something around here that they can eat. And Jesus famously tells them, you give them something to eat. I mean, they've been out doing mighty works, casting out demons and healing people, you know. Teaching the Word, preaching the Kingdom. And so, you know, well, you've been doing all this stuff, you, you know, you're telling me about everything you've done. You give them something to eat. In John's account, Jesus primed the pump with a question. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And so, uh, by the way, this is one uh, event in the Gospels that's recorded in all four Gospels. That's not that common. So we're told by John that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He's testing Philip when he asked this question. And so they ask, uh, well, should we take 200 denarii and go buy food for all this crowd? That's like eight months' wages for a, for a common man. A denarii was a day's wage. Now, to the apostles, when Jesus says, you give them something to eat, this is the preposterous suggestion. How are we going to do that? We, you know, 200 denarii to go buy stuff? You give them something to eat, right. How? With what? 
These guys have just returned from an excursion where they've seen God do amazing things, but they're not quite ready for this. But Jesus does give them something to eat. It's not preposterous to Him or for Him because He's the God of all creation. Nothing's too difficult for Him. His only constraint was the Father's will since He came to do the will of the Father. McGee says, The Creator who made the fish at the beginning and caused the grain to multiply in the field now by His fiat word creates food for the crowd. He commands them to do, the apostles, to do an impossible task. They must learn, as we must learn, that He always commands the impossible. The reason is obvious. He intends to do the work. If you feel the Lord directing you and you're sure that it's He's directing you and it's impossible, then you can know that He's going to be the one to fulfill what He requires. And the apostles do end up taking part in giving them something to eat, though. They become the table servers, the waiters. There aren't any tables. But what He gives them, they can pass on and He can multiply the effect infinitely if needed. So he tells them, go see how many loaves they have. And they, John says, it's this little boy has five barley loaves and two fish. And barley loaves, they wouldn't have been like our pound loaf of bread. You know, they'd be little round loaves. It's probably the kid's you know, lunch that he had with him. And so he tells them, sit down on the ground. You know, we, we've got an orderly assembly here. Jesus orders everything. There's no buffet line where everybody can go through uh, and when He's providing, you obey His instructions. God is a God of order and not of confusion. And I think there's a, a method of why Jesus is having everything so orderly and organized. No one is going to miss the actuality of what is happening. There will be no doubt that a great miracle has occurred, as everybody can see. The witnesses later will not be able to say, well, I didn't really see what was going on. You know, it was all kind of chaotic. And, you know, maybe it was a miracle, maybe it wasn't. No, they will all know. So they sat down in ranks, it says. The ancient Greek word for ranks is a very pictorial word. It's the normal Greek word for the rows of vegetables in the vegetable garden. So there's, when they're in ranks, sitting down in ranks, they're in rows, like in a vegetable garden. When you looked at the little groups as they sat there in their orderly rows, they looked all the, for all the world like the rows of vegetables in a series of garden plots, says William Barclay. And, you know, normally the Jewish people would sit in like a horseshoe shape at a table or something uh, when they were having a, a community meal. So this was an orderly kind of a, an assembly that was taking place. And so he takes... Uh, the five loaves, the two fish, and he divides it among them all, and everyone was filled. All their hunger was satisfied. Um, McDonald points out the words used are highly suggestive of the Lord's Supper, which commemorates his death. As we saw earlier, he took the loaves, he broke, them, he blessed, he broke, and he gave, and that was the order in the communion with his apostles. He took bread, he blessed the Father. He broke the bread. He gave it. And interestingly, the verbs here are in different tenses. 
Um, the Greek scholar Vincent says the verbs are in different tenses, the former in the aorist and the latter in the imperfect. And so I know that you understand what that means. Right? I don't understand what that means. Yeah. I don't know the Greek. But he tells us the aorist implies the instantaneous, the imperfect, the continuous act. Farrar remarks that the multiplication the mul- Multiplication evidently took place in Christ's hands between the acts of breaking and giving. So if this Greek was translated literally, it would be he, he break and kept on giving. I heard uh, Joe Foch speaking of this and he compared it to a cheese stick. He said you have a cheese stick and you pull that break it off and, and you just keep, you know, and so, you know, Jesus is, just keeps breaking off whatever bread he's got and keeps handing it out. You know, same way with the fish as he divides it up. So he's creating bread and fish in his hands. He is the creator. It's no big deal for him, you know. And Jesus is very giving by nature. God the Father is giving by nature. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. There's no shortage and he he gives abundantly here. As we see there are a bunch of leftovers. So they all, all ate and were filled. Uh, John tells us they ate all they wanted. So it wasn't just like, you know, oh, well, I've had enough. It was whatever they wanted, they were able to eat. So it was uh, like a buffet, but they were seated and they were being served. It was an all-you-can-eat meal is what it was. It's a limited selection, bread and fish, but it's an abundant spread. And so they took up these 12 baskets full of leftovers. These baskets might have been of different sizes, but they were. this is the word for a wicker basket. And interestingly, 12 baskets, the 12 apostles were probably out serving, and they were probably using baskets to serve, and so they brought back whatever was left. Well, nobody wants it anymore. You know. And so we have leftovers. Uh, they have more leftover than they started with. God is a bountiful giver. Uh, you notice that nothing was wasted. The surplus was gathered up. They had fish sandwiches for the trip back. Right? It wasn't going to be wasted wasted food. And those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. And again, there were women and children. Uh, liberal theologians sometimes refer to this as the miracle of sharing. They don't believe that Jesus actually created anything, but that the people realized the boy was willing to share his loaves and fishes with the crowd, and so they were all ashamed and brought out the food they had been hoarding for later. You know, we, we brought some food. We're not going to bring it out because everybody's going to want some. So this is their miracle. It was, oh, it opened people's hearts so that they would share. It's a nice story. And sharing's good. But the apostles are smarter than that. They would not ascribe this to a miracle. It would have been too obvious that other food was being brought out and eaten. And when they took up the leftovers, what was there? Only barley loaves and fish. No other bread or meat, no fruit or other consumables. They didn't collect any tacos or fried chicken. There's all bread and fish. Henry Morris says to feed 5,000 men plus women and children from five loaves and two fishes is obviously humanly impossible. Naturalistic skeptics have tried to explain away this miracle as resulting from the example of sharing his lunch 
by one boy, which supposedly stimulated others to share also. Such an artificial explanation could hardly account for the twelve baskets full of fragments that everyone was, uh, and that, that was twelve baskets after everyone was filled. This was nothing less than a mighty miracle of creation, setting aside his own created law of mass conservation. You know, that's one of our um, most established laws is that uh, energy matter cannot be created nor destroyed. It's never been violated as far as we have been able to observe. Uh, so he sets that aside and actually does a work of mighty creation. He supernaturally created a great amount of bread and meat to feed the multitude. This was well within his ability as creator of all things in the beginning, as we see in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 16, and, and other places. By the way, Jesus fed them spiritually before feeding their bodies. We are told authoritatively today that the physical needs must be met before the spiritual needs can be considered. For example, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You may have heard of that. He's a, he was a psychologist. It's not true, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's this pyramid, and at the bottom you have your uh, very basic needs, air, water, food. And so as you, you know, shelter, as you proceed up, and at the top is self-actualization. But you have to have all these other needs met because you, you don't even consider being, you know, the importance of anything spiritual until you have all your physical needs in your safe, safe place. Uh, it's not true. Spiritual need is the greatest need. And Jesus dealt with that need before he dealt with the physical need that they had with hunger. So Jesus deals with the greatest need first. It's more important that the spiritual hunger be satisfied than the bodily hunger. They would not starve to death this one day, although they might become very weary. But they could perish eternally if they did not have the words of Jesus in which to trust. So, you know, even if you starve to death, if you got Jesus' words and you're not spiritually hungry, you've got eternity. But with a full belly, with a bank full of bitcoins, whatever the most popular currency is now, and you die. All that stuff is doesn't do you any good. It's all gone. Well, John, in his gospel, has an addendum to this. The other gospel writers don't include it. But after Jesus walks on the water, and he goes to the other side, which we'll see next in the Gospel of Mark. It's also there in the Gospel of John. After he goes to the other side, the the people who he's fed here, they um, wake up the next day, they spend the night, they wake up and they say, oh, Jesus is gone and, and the apostles are gone. But there were some other boats there and so they went back to the other side and they're looking for Jesus. Right? And in John chapter 6, verse 22, we find uh, this account. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. I guess they had full stomachs and they slept the night and they don't want to run back around the top of the lake. Right? They're looking for a boat. 
And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? That's not really what they're interested in. Jesus cuts to the chase. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Jesus says, you need what I've been talking about in the Spirit. Now, this is not about bread and fish. And this is all you're interested in. It's basically what he's telling them. You just want full bellies. And, And they say to Him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answers and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? I mean, He's just fed 5,000 people. They were among that crowd. He just fed them with a little bit of food. And they're asking for a sign. And we know the reason they're asking for a sign is in the next verse. He says, what sign are you going to do? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread to eat from heaven. So what they were looking for was um, a meal ticket for the next 40 years or so. You know, it's 40 years in the wilderness, right? Now, God never intended originally for them to eat that manna for 40 years in the wilderness. They could have gone into the promised land and, and you know, and so after a while they're like, oh, this manna, we can't stand it anymore. You know? But again, that was, uh, you know, that was God being flexible <laughs> with them. But here, these people are, you know, they're just seeking what they can get on a physical level, on a temporal level. They didn't respond to Jesus and the things that He taught. They didn't believe. And, you know, it says at the end of this, many of them went away. They didn't follow Him anymore. So that if you read John 6, we spent time with it, you know, a couple of years ago and went through it in detail. But this conflict goes on through the rest of the chapter, rest of chapter 6. And it tells us many followed Jesus no more. Everyone who followed Jesus was not a follower of Jesus. Some of them were followers of loaves and fishes. People hang out around Jesus with varied motives. Who or what are you a follower of? It's a question we should ask ourselves from time to time. A reality check. The Lord knows His sheep. And they know His voice. And they follow Him. Finally, Hebrews 13 Verses 20 and 21, there's a benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews, which is particularly appropriate for our study today, I think, where he says, uh, verse 20, Hebrews 13, 20, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.